There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Women's mental health. Does it differ from men's mental health? Is gender a critical variable in determining mental health? Does it play a role in how mental illness expresses itself? Questions that form part of our conversation on this episode of Beyond Madness. And joining us for today's episode to discuss the topic of women's mental health, we have two senior colleagues and fellow psychiatrists, Professors Soraya Sidat and Soli Ratamani. Soraya is a distinguished professor of psychiatry and executive head of the Department of Psychiatry at Stellenbosch University. And Solly is the former head of department of psychiatry at Sefako Machato Medical University and the current chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Mental Health, providing guidance to the South African Minister of Health on matters related to mental health. Soraya and Solly, welcome. Great to have you join me for today's episode, noting that today's episode is released on Tuesday, the 9th of August, Women's Day here in South Africa. It will also be the final episode of the current batch of episodes of Beyond Madness as we take a production break. But fear not, faithful listeners, we intend to return in the not-too-distant future with more of what you've come to expect, courtesy of Adcock Ingram, OTC's Sponsors of Brave Initiative. So, Soraya, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with you, and up front I, I posed a couple of questions. So we'll revisit them individually to set the scene generally before we get into the specifics. And obviously, Solly, you can feel free to jump in at any time. But just to just to put perspective on this, uh, the latest data that I have, well, it comes from mid-2020, 51.1% of our population are female. And certainly when one looks at women generally within the country, more disadvantaged than males, although the gap is narrowing. And just as a, a perspective, 43% of children live with mothers only with uh, 33.8% living with both parents. So there is a disproportionate number of kids living with mothers only. And I think quite alarmingly for me, 21% of women have experienced physical violence by a partner. So that just kind of puts a general uh, context to being a woman in South Africa. So, Soraya, a question. Is there such a thing as women's mental health? And if so, should we not also be talking about men's mental health? And, and is it helpful to kind of look at the uh, uh, situation from a very gendered perspective, I will leave that to you to share your thoughts. I would say yes to all three questions. Uh, women's health um, and their mental health more specifically um, has historically been um, intricately linked to their status in society, uh, to their social roles. Um, and I think that a gendered and sex-informed perspective is necessary uh, for the improvement and optimization of women's mental health. So uh, concern for women's health and mental health in particular is not about sexism. It's about raising awareness um, and addressing the disparities that exist in uh, mental health between men and women. 
So while we need to focus on women's mental health, we also need to equally focus on men's mental health. But um, I think the raising of awareness of women's mental health is around the um, existing knowledge that we have that sex and gender influence mental illness in many ways. Um, Firstly, um, sex can exclusively determine whether a man or woman is at risk for developing a mental disorder like premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which occurs exclusively in women. Um, Sex or gender can also moderate the overall risk of development of a disorder. And we know that from differences in prevalence rates, which you referred to. Yeah. Um, women in particular at much higher risk of affective disorders, such as mood and anxiety disorders. We know that boys and young men are at higher risk of uh, conditions like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and other conduct disorders. And then there are a few disorders that um, have roughly equal rates, uh, roughly equal prevalence in men and women. Um, I think there's also good evidence that sex or gender can influence the differences in clinical manifestation of a particular disorder, so differences in symptom profiles. Um, And we know that reproductive life cycle events, um, including variations in uh, ovarian hormones during the menstrual cycle, during pregnancy, during menopause, um, contribute to sex differences in mental illness. So those are just some of the reasons that we need to focus on women's mental health. Well, I think from everything you've said, I mean, there are very clearly important issues that need to be considered when one is dealing with men or women. And so clinically, I would say that it that it is helpful. I mean, ultimately, though, a patient is a patient, but one is looking at more gender-specific risk factors or possible manifestations and having a greater awareness of, of, of what one might be dealing with as a psychiatrist. So I think that there are more specific and more unique, should I say, gender-specific mental health issues. And I think you've alluded to that in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, hormones. So, Solly, I mean, your thoughts on, on, on what Soraya was saying? Anything that you wanted to add? I agree with Soraya. And uh, I think um, another important component to add here, it's uh, the psychosocial and cultural Yes. A perspective because um, there are different societies bring up women and men in a different way. Uh, women are supposed in some cultures to be subservient to men, to, to be the ones who look after the home, after the children. In fact, in some cultures, they're not even supposed to work. They just have to be at home. And, and that brings up a lot of stress on women. Uh, because they, they they are not out there to deal with uh, the day-to-day issues of life. Uh, at the same time, carrying that burden goes with other risks. For instance, gender-based violence, mm. it's mainly affecting women. Right. And from there springs other serious uh, problems, such as severe anxiety, severe depression. I mean, generally, I think as what I expressed it, we, we have more anxiety and depression amongst women compared to men. But the symptoms are the same. Mm. And you find that uh, men don't easily go for help, but women do. Mm. But when you come to gender-based violence and other factors that contribute to post-traumatic stress disorder, it seems as though, according to studies reported by WHO, women take longer to actually ask for help, three to four, five years, 
whereas men would ask for help after robberies and other things that lead to post-traumatic stress within a year. Symptoms are the same, Mm -hmm. but there's uh, access to help takes a little longer. And what controls that? This is stigma. Um, There's internalized stigma or what they call internal stigma in women because women tend to feel the world out there is against them. But but there's also a reality that there is external stigma. Uh, women take take note of what the world out there says about them or thinks about them. So that might be influencing why they take long to ask for help in certain conditions. I mean, why do people stay, why women stay in uh, toxic marriages or relationships right. where they're beaten up, where they are undermined, um, and, and they're told they don't really exist except for making men happy. I mean, that, that is problematic. Well, I think you've, you've, you've touched on something that I was going to get to, but we'll, we'll leap straight in, which is post-traumatic stress disorder and this idea that women might present later. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've understood in terms of what you're saying is that the nature of the event that has led to the trauma yes. is very difficult to actually bring to the fore and to seek help for. These are not situations that are particularly comfortable generally to, to, to talk about and when you've been a victim. And I mean, for example, certainly in terms of interpersonal violence, again, South African data, 21% of women yes. um, have suffered interpersonal violence. Mm. And if you're comparing that to international uh, uh, norms, so to speak, way in excess, and certainly seemingly greatest amongst less educated and those in the lowest wealth quintile, so that in the lowest fifth of, of society. So it seems that poorer women, less educated women are even more vulnerable to suffering these kinds of, of traumas. So then you kind of put that into the mix and where do they go for help? And in terms of help seeking, it makes sense that you would say PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the help seeking takes a lot longer in women. So Raya, I'm not sure what your, and I haven't even started to speak about sexual assault, we were saying that in South Africa, amongst women 18 to 49, a prevalence rate of 24, a lifetime prevalence rate of 24.9%. So, I mean, those are, those are significant statistics and really statistics that should give us pause to kind of look at our society very critically and say, what is going on in that sense? But coming back to the issue of PTSD, where there's a, a female to male ratio of approximately two to one. So women seem to disproportionately be impacted by, by PTSD in, in, in response to trauma. So Saraya, I, I know that you've done research and, and, and you have, I'm sure, very specific comments that you'd like to make on that. There are a number of reasons that explain the two to threefold higher rate of PTSD in women compared to men. We know that the characteristics of the traumatic event uh, play a role. Um, So women tend to be exposed to high-impact events such as sexual violence and interpersonal violence, and those are events that are associated with a high probability of developing uh, PTSD. Uh, There are also differences in how men and women subjectively experience uh, these different types of events. Um, We also know that the timing of the event is another contributory factor for understanding gender differences. Um, And women tend to experience traumatic events more at a younger age uh, compared to men. And so when you have a girl child being exposed to domestic violence or sexual abuse, 
at a very young age, um, this has major and profound impacts on their neurobiological development. Um, and coupled with um, other risk factors such as a lack of social support um, in their, um, you know, in their environment, a lack of nurturing. This puts um, the girl child at a much higher risk of developing PTSD um, over the lifespan. Uh, we also know that culturally um, the increased risk of PTSD symptoms is magnified in more traditional cultures, and this increased risk may actually not be evident among women. Uh, as Sorry has said, uh, women uh, tend to seek out treatment less than men, mm. especially in relation to um, sexual forms of violence right. because of the stigma that is associated. But interestingly, when women do seek treatment, they tend to be retained in treatment longer than men. So um, there are a number of studies that show that men with PTSD drop out of trauma treatment more often than women. Um, also, studies that show that recovery rates are higher in women than in men, especially recovery rates um, in relation to uh, more psychotherapeutic forms of treatment. Um, like cognitive behavior therapy or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which are first-line psychotherapies uh, for PTSD. Then we also know that um, there are some differences um, in relation to uh, the response to pharmacotherapy, uh, but there have been far fewer studies right. on response to SSRIs and, you know, the, the, the sex differences between women and men. So I think what's really interesting is that is that retention in treatment and better recovery go hand in hand. So clearly, once a woman takes a decision to engage in a psychotherapeutic process, should that lead to additional pharmacotherapy or, or not, the inclination is to, well, in terms of what the data is telling us, for them to stay with the process and therefore do better. Would that be correct, Sarah, in terms of what I'm understanding? Yes, that is correct. Um, I think it's also important to remember that um, hormonal factors – and neurobiological uh, dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary uh, adrenal axis is critical when we think about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but other uh, affective disorders, mood and anxiety disorders with the HPA axis um, is dysregulated. And so differences in hormonal uh, disturbances in that axis between women and men um, is also um, one explanatory factor for the differential response of men and women um, to psychological trauma. Right. Um, and what we do need is more research on um, sex and gender-sensitive treatments. We need to um, be able to personalise treatments more um, yes. on, on the basis of, of sex and gender. Right, because I think that that comes down to a basic philosophy, which is you've got to find the patient where they are. And so if there are more unique factors which determine staying in treatment, doing better from treatment, that one can differentiate in terms of gender, then one needs to understand what those might be. Because clearly as a psychotherapist, as a psychiatrist, psychologist, you need to have an awareness of that in order to retain people in treatment. Because that is a major problem really, is 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 retaining in treatment and also compliance, depending on what treatment you institute. Solly, your, your comments? 
No, I agree with that. And I also think that we have to look at um, age-specific issues. Uh, for instance, if you take a disorder such as uh, borderline personality disorder, it might be equal in men and women. However, it tends to hit younger women more than younger men. And uh, issues of you know self-harm, rapid mood swings and so on, suicidal thoughts in borderline personality disorder, we tend to see clinically more young women yes. because they come to therapy or they're brought to therapy by friends, relatives, and so on. And, and it doesn't seem to be too much in, 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 in men. No. Uh, so I pointed out that conduct disorders generally tend to be more in men yes. or at least express more in terms of what we see in our clinics in young boys and young men than in women. So, so it's also important to know that... Uh, for instance, with disorders such as borderline personal disorder, there are other, you know, complications. Of course, depression is there, yes. anxiety. But then there's another problem of substance abuse. Substance abuse in both men and women could be the same. However, what we find from WHO report is that uh, sex hormone increases craving for substances. So one has to be more mindful of uh, how quickly you take a young lady who has a borderline personality disorder into treatment because uh, they're at the age where sex hormones are raging and therefore the craving for substance would, would also be high. Well, I think personality disorders is a, is a, is a whole discussion yes. in its own right. But certainly, I mean, if we're talking about borderline personality disorder, we're talking about impulsivity, we're talking about mood instability, we're yes. talking about self-harm and suicidality, not necessarily completed suicide, but certainly self-harm, which may be a proxy for an attempted suicide, but not necessarily attempted suicide. And certainly, in my own personal uh, uh, clinical perspective, Overwhelmingly female, haven't seen too many men who engage in, 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 in those kinds of behaviors or manifest in that way. But what I do see more in men is antisocial and narcissistic. So I do think that there are certain personality styles that um, one finds more readily depending on, on, on gender. But, you know, one has to be careful that you don't make an exclusive statement and say, well, it's absolutely one or the other. But I do think that there is a tendency in terms of what I've seen for, for there be to be a female preponderance for certain types of, of, of personality styles and a certain type of uh, a personality style more associated with, with males. I'm not sure what your thoughts are, Soraya, on, on, on that. Well, you know, linked to personality disorders are uh, differences in coping styles between the genders. Because we know that, um, you know, in, in line with a masculine gender role, um, when we think about exposure to traumatic stress specifically, which um, often sort of underlies um, personality disorder, like borderline personality disorder, men tend to cope with a traumatic experience using more problem-focused strategies. And those problem-focused strategies may serve to diminish the risk of PTSD symptoms right. that they would develop uh, following a traumatic event. In women, there is a tendency to use more avoidance and emotion coping uh, styles of um, dealing with traumatic stress. And women um, also are more likely to take psychoactive substances to reduce the high arousal level soon after a traumatic event. Right. 
um, that are associated with this increased risk of PTSD. So I think coping styles are also linked to the personality yes. um, styles and you know dysfunctional um, personality that we see. Well, I think one of the other sort of broad uh, ways of, of, of distinguishing is this internalizing versus externalizing, where it's seen that women tend to more internalize, whereas men externalize. So women will experience things, and, and just in, in line with what Soraya was saying, emotionally, men are more inclined to act out behaviorally. And I think sometimes in, in, in dealing with difficult circumstances, men might be more inclined to substances, Yes, might be more inclined to physical aggression. Whereas women will not necessarily walk down that path. So I think there are differences in terms of coping, coming back to what Soraya was saying, that do distinguish. But again, I mean, you know, one has to be so careful in terms of making absolute statements. We're talking really broadly and we're talking generally. But at the end of the day, my experience has taught me you can't always predict exactly how a person is going to respond simply on the basis of gender. You can have sort of broad understandings, but when you come down to the specific individual, then you've got to look at the, at, at the individual. But just moving on from there, I wanted to come back to, to mood disorders and, and, and depression, because clearly, again, when you look at the prevalence, you're kind of looking at women almost double that of men, which kind of speaks to what we're talking about now, which is this more internalizing, experiencing things more emotionally. And obviously the one big differentiation in general is disorders related to or disorders of mood that seem to occur round about times of hormonal change in women. We're talking puberty, we're talking menstruation, we're talking pregnancy, we're talking menopause. So they're very key uh, 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 milestones or, or situations that occur in women where there are hormonal changes that seem to be associated with uh, with mood problems, which might explain the increased prevalence in, in women versus men. There might be other factors. Saray, I'm not sure what your comments might be on that. Yes, and those sex differences tend to manifest around the time of puberty, right. which um, aligns with, um, you know, the hormonal theory hypothesis um, and the uh, link to reproductive life cycle events um, and mood disorders in women, um, you know, disorders such as premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, major depressive disorder with peripartum onset. Right. And, um, you know, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, especially the, the more recent iteration, DSM-5, you know, has included um, – the specifier of peripartum onset um, so that as clinicians, we don't forget uh, to think about, um, you know, these kind of reproductive life events uh, that may put women at an increased risk um, of a first onset of um, illness. Sometimes it's difficult to differentiate um, some of the uh, symptoms of a mood disorder from um, normal um, disturbances, if you will, that occur as a result of um, being in the postpartum period. For example, sleep and energy disturbances, um, which may be kind of normal uh, disturbances uh, during the postpartum differentiate those so they may be normative right um and so sometimes you know there's a kind of lower diagnostic um, reliability of uh, some of the symptoms of major depressive disorder um in women um at, at those times of the of the 
uh, of the life onset. cycle. But what I think is important is this idea of a peripartum onset. So I think that traditionally, when I was training, it was always about the postpartum period. But I think increasingly what we've understood is that mood problems can have their onset before. And I think a past history of a mood problem should always alert one. And I think that we, we had a previous podcast talking specifically about pregnancy and psychiatry. And in fact, pregnancy was seen as a, as a unique opportunity to actually, you know, look at mental health issues in, in women. And specifically because mental health issues during pregnancy impact ultimately post-pregnancy if there is a mood problem in terms of how the mother parents, how that impacts upon the child's development, and you start to get this intergenerational transmission of problems which becomes almost self-perpetuating as you move from generation to generation. So the idea of really looking carefully at, at mental health issues during the uh, uh, peripartum period I think is a, is a unique opportunity and I think a very important issue that, that needs to be borne in mind generally. Soraya, Solly, your thoughts? Yeah. I, I think this is a crucial issue. Um, we, we did a study in Durban with Professor Cheatham. Okay. And we found that um, women who actually had mental health problems in the puerperium, postpartum period, also had problems before. Right. You know, uh, it seems as though if you could screen, you know, women before childbirth and during, you know, immediately after childbirth, we, we are likely to predict those who, who who'd need how many of them would need help, right. and how many would need to be followed up. So it's it's that whole period around you know childbirth that is very very important. But I think uh, and and of course that would um, help us you know uh, intervene quite early so that the person must not go into postpartum psychosis and so on. Well, I think postpartum psychosis is very important for one specific reason: is that that's mm. where you may encounter infanticide. Exactly. The murdering and yeah. the killing of the child as a consequence of a psychotic episode. Yeah. And that psychotic episode, it's, it's mainly depression with psychotic features. Right. You know, because once that clears, uh, people return to normal functioning, you know, with intervention, with my appropriate management. But, you know, uh, this discussion brings up an important issue that men are men and women are women. Right. So biology is important, you know. Uh, women have a womb and uh, men don't, you know. Now, we tried to interview some men around that study to check how they were feeling around the time when the partners were expectant yes. and after childbirth and so on. They they had some mood changes, but uh, nobody did the research. I don't know whether Sora is aware of the research uh, around whether men do have query postpartum issues. You know, when 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 their spouses have given birth, Yes. Do they also go through some kind of? Uh... There was there was a study, or there was literature, certainly mm. on men experiencing nausea. Yeah. At the, and I, I mean, literally, when the partner or the wife was going through uh, uh, periods of nausea, that they themselves would. I don't know if it was a sympathetic reaction, but they would feel it. I don't yes. know, Soraya, if 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 you have any comments on that, Solly's. Specifically yes, asking. You know, there is evidence to show that uh, men can experience um, postpartum or, or paternal sort of major depressive disorder in the postpartum period. Um, and, uh, you know, there are many sort of contributory factors. Most of them are sort of 
um, social, cultural, mm. you know, attachment-related factors, displacement of the uh, of of the man um, in in the in the postpartum period, um, and uh, you know, it, it is a it is a, a well-known phenomenon, but I think an underdiagnosed phenomenon. I think also when one looks at uh, difficulties in the peripartum period the lack of a supportive partner yes. often contributes. And so I think men have a very important role to play at some level in terms of their availability or lack of availability. And specifically where a woman is particularly vulnerable for whatever reason, I think the absence of a supportive partner just kind of puts her more at risk. Potentially. Yes, uh, more than a supportive partner, I think a supportive environment. Right. Because sometimes, you know, you go, women go back to their, homes to be with their mothers right. and other relatives. If you have that atmosphere, if that environment where people would help you look after the baby, take care of you, take care of some of your needs, uh, women tend to do better in that setting. But if they're alone yes. and you find a, an unsupportive partner, you know, the end result is bad. It means that uh, that woman is likely to get more and more depressed. The normal, you know, blues, you know, after yes. childbirth, would end up in severe depression. So we're saying there's a role for grandmothers too. Yes. Very important. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and I think, you know what, it's, it's for me always very important never to forget the grandparents mm. because I think grandparents, and I'm speaking generally now, not about gender issues, but I think grandparents play a very important role in the child's life. And, you know, I've, I've said it before on, on, on the podcast and I'll say it again. When I see three generations together, I'm always very heartened. I see the grandparents, the parents, the children, everybody is, is, is exchanging. That intergenerational connection, I think, is very important because to some extent, we, we tend to exist sometimes in a, in a world that is very age constrained. You mix with certain people and you don't mix with other people based on age. And I don't think that's particularly healthy, personally. Mm. I think grandparents have a lot to offer. Obviously, parents do. And I think that intergenerational and coming from a different time, there are things that they impart which are different to what parents impart. And so I'm talking yes. about grandparents, Soraya, right. so I've kind of gone off track. But I think that going back to what Solly has said is that a supportive environment generally during the peripartum period is, is, is important. So your thoughts, Soraya, on, on, on that? Yes, and, you know, if we think about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, again, social support has been shown to be the most robust okay. predictor of the development of PTSD, especially in uh, young children and adolescents. Um, so, you know, we can't underestimate the, the power of um, growing up and, and being nurtured in a, in a supportive environment. Um, it's not just true for uh, having a protective effect for PTSD, but, you know, for many other um, psychiatric disorders that can occur um, in young adulthood. Right. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a key take-home message in terms of the, the importance of, of, of environmental support. I think one of the issues that, that comes up for me is, is certainly w with regard to, to pregnancy is the whole issue of treatment planning. So, for example, say a, a woman is already on psychiatric medication, has an existing psychiatric condition. I think it's very important for there to be careful consideration of how that is going to be managed during the peripartum period. Because at the end of the day, there is risk. And now you have somebody who is on treatment. And obviously the whole issue 
of what is the impact of the medication going to have on the developing fetus. These kind of conversations are, are very important because they may impact on compliance, which could impact on the actual clinical status. And so you can have a downward spiral if, if one is not careful. So the issue for me is, 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 is one of treatment planning in the prenatal period specifically. Solly, your thoughts? I think that this is crucial. And, and, and most probably here we're talking also about advocacy and about preparing the woman for childbirth. For instance, a classical example is of women who are addicted to opiate substances. Okay. It's important to let them know that uh, if they continue to abuse these substances, the chances of stillbirths or complications uh, in the child's development, you know, uh, poor development of the child are, are very high. Uh, miscarriages are common. Right. So, so you want them to stop abusing these substances. But also, um, they might need some medications uh, for coexisting mental illnesses. These might interact negatively with uh, whatever substance that they, uh, they are abusing be it alcohol, heroin, or any of the other substances. I think that education is important for women. Uh, it's always difficult to win women who are addicted to substances, of, for instance, opiates, uh, but I think it's worth a try. Of course, because you're looking at the woman herself and, of course, the fetus yes. in development. Yes. Soraya, your thoughts on, 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 on the kind of suggestion that you know, the, the treatment planning is so critical in, in, in terms of that time? Treatment planning is so critical, and uh, you know, as Sally has said, it needs to be done in an open and transparent way. So, um, you know, the education and information that is shared, um, and I think that women in this period are often more concerned about the effects on the fetus. You know, yes, they're yes. concerned about the teratogenicity of uh, medications. Um, and, you know, this is one of the more peculiar situations in psychiatry where, especially if you're, um, you know, you're deciding on a pharmacotherapy treatment plan, you have to think very carefully about, um, you know, the mom as well as the infant. So there are two individuals that you're essentially managing um, in the process. Um, and so I think that, you know, careful planning, ongoing uh, monitoring, um, ongoing discussions, because this is not just, you know, a single sort of informed consent process. Yes. Um, it is, um, you know, it is a, a continual process of sharing information, of monitoring the mom fetus and infant. And I think one has to also think very carefully about the early and uh, later sort of postpartum periods when the mum may be breastfeeding or is making decisions around breastfeeding. Um, and also, you know, the potential impact on the um, on the infant, yes. new developmental impact. I think we often um, underestimate some of the kind of more nuanced um, effects of medication, side effects of medication uh, that um, often sort of go unmonitored in infants. It's only when they have more pronounced, more severe right. side effects, neurodevelopmental um, side effects, uh, but often the kind of more subtle effects are missed and only picked up when they uh, present later, you know, with um, learning difficulties or behavioral problems, um, so I think it is crucial. 
And specifically, you know, where the infant has been exposed to substances mm. in the womb and mm. is suddenly no longer in the womb, yes. you can move into almost a withdrawal kind of situation where the infant has been exposed and suddenly the substance is not there anymore. Yes. And that's an issue that one has to be mindful of, I think, in terms of timing of dosing of, of, of treatment, um, you know, just being mindful of that postpartum period where the infant will no longer have that exposure. And I think that's something which is, you know, having to be brought into the, into the discussion. But something you mentioned earlier, Solly, which is, and I think, or Soraya mentioned it, that the mother's concern is for the fetus. And certainly with eating disorders, when an eating disordered patient falls pregnant, their focus shifts. And so you often get a cessation of eating disorder symptomatology during the peripartum period because now all of the focus is on the child. And in a sense, that's a good thing. Obviously, that's what we want. It's how you manage the postpartum period that is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there are weight changes, mm-hmm. and we're talking specifically about eating disorders. But what was being said about women who are, are, are abusing substances who can shift their focus to to the uh, to the fetus, which I think is very important. Solly, I think you had mentioned something, and then so well. Yeah, you know, uh, I just thought we should look at eating disorders. Yes. Uh, specifically because we are also trying to justify the fact that we need to focus on women's mental health, you know, separately from men's mental health, or together, basically. I think together. together yeah. I, I think we are looking specifically in this episode, but we're not forgetting the men because, in fact, all through the discussion, men have been coming into the, yes, into yes. the discussion. And yeah. I think that you can't look at one without the other. You, yeah. you, you can have a selective focus, but you, you have to also have the bigger picture, which involves both men and women. So coming back to your point on eating disorders. So, so uh, this is really where, Christopher, you have more experience because of the research you've done. So we're going to hear from you more, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to control the program just because I'm the host. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, one gets an impression that you, you have eating disorders in both male and female. Yes. However, the tendency is that the people we see at the clinics are more women. Women. Yep. And um, there's there's a whole lot of associated issues. I remember at the clinic you ran. Um, it was so difficult to deal with just anxiety or depression. These people, they had to do a total management, yes. which un- included also trying to feed them, trying to stabilize the weight wow. and so on, so on, you know. Uh, but uh, there was an, a, an important issue about self-image, which right. comes up there, you know, in terms of uh, how, what the person thinks of the body, sure. the size, weight, and so on. Now, these are intricacies that I personally don't have much experience with, and I want to leave it to you and Soraya to to explore further. (laughs) Well, I think that firstly, you know, when you're working with eating disorders, you really have to have a very holistic view of the patient because as much as you are working with eating disorders symptomatically, Mm. the consequences of eating disorders are very profound in terms of mood. Mm. And so, for example, in the eating disorders unit at Tara, most of the anorexics who were admitted or even the bulimics had depressive symptoms. Mm. Many were on antidepressants, but they weren't working because at the end of the day, what you're dealing with are the consequences of the eating disorder and specifically with anorexia, the starvation process, which unlocks a whole range of, 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 of symptoms. And you have to be able to, to, to tease out 
what is primary in terms of what your focus needs to be and in terms of how you need to approach the patient because otherwise you will get into potential pharmaceutical approaches where in fact that's not where it's at. It's about nutritional rehabilitation which is really difficult and, 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 and weight restoration. But you touched on something very important which is this issue of body dissatisfaction. Yes. Where the way in which you see yourself or what your expectations are are not met and therefore there's a, a push. So you have this kind of what we call real ideal discrepancy where what you idealize and what you actually are are not necessarily the same. There's body dissatisfaction and very often the body dissatisfaction is what drives, certainly in anorexics and also to some extent in, in bulimics, drives the kind of dietary changes that ultimately lead to the condition. And I mean, if, if you look at the gender ratio between male and female, it's approximately 10 to 1 in favor of females. Mm-hmm. So certainly an overwhelmingly female group of conditions. Now the question is, are there male-specific forms of eating disorders which are not in the DSM and which we have not described more fully? And there I would take you to the issue of societal expectations mm-hmm. of body size. So for women it might be to be smaller, but for men it might be to be larger. And mm. so for certain individuals that is kind of exaggerated in terms of yes. what they believe they need to be. So with men there's a condition called muscle dysmorphia where essentially the man perceives himself as being too small and lands up potentially in the gym pushing weights to get to a certain size and then augmenting that with anabolic steroids which have their own consequences in terms of mood, never mind the physical consequences in terms of fertility, etc., liver damage. So what you find, and, and this is what, what is important because I was once approached, I think it was by TV program Carte Blanche to mm. to talk about muscle dysmorphia and 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 to to find patients and I said well I don't have any patients mm. they don't come to me because they don't perceive that they necessarily have a problem because they're in the gym doing what they do I said if you're going to look for these kind of problems you might need to look at individuals who are misusing anabolic steroids because they might be your population but they're certainly not a psychiatric male patient population because their presentation is completely different. So I think that the gender distribution in terms of eating disorders is because we haven't necessarily fully understood the spectrum of that kind of pathology in men being the equivalent to women starting out with body dissatisfaction. Do you think uh, hormonal differences come into the picture? That's a difficult one. I, I, I've never really thought about it. You know, I think when you when you deal with eating disorders, we're very much about um, societal and cultural values mm-hmm. and the kind of norms that exist and the kind of pressures that exist within the minds of individuals, but also because of what is out there to 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 be something which you don't necessarily have to be in order to be okay. You know, when you start to reduce who you are and how you are to a number on a scale or a specific look then you've lost the balance. Yes. And I think one of the things that I will often be talking about with my patients is how to how to find that balance. I can understand that every person wants to look the best that they can. There's no problem with that. And every person wants to be as healthy as they can. But anything taken to an extreme is invariably going to cause problems, pathological problems. And that's the path, the slippery slope to an eating disorder. Because the truth is nobody starts out saying, I think I want to have anorexia nervosa. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a, 
it's a terrible illness. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a kind of a psychological cancer for me. It just kind of eats you and it erodes you and it just destroys you as a, as a person. So I can't speak strongly enough against unnecessary dieting. Yes. Because one of the biggest risk factors for developing an eating disorder is dieting. So I don't want to turn this episode into a discussion purely about eating disorders, but if there is a gender bias. But, but I, would, I would like to hear what Soraya's uh, experience yes. is. Soraya? I want to touch on uh, what you've said um, about the differences between men and women in relation to eating disorders. And I think, you know, the common thread for me outside of biology and genetics and neurodevelopmental factors that play into these gender differences that we see in um, a variety of uh, mental disorders, um, social expectations and, you know, gender norms and gender roles are are so critical um, in, in, you know, this equation. And for me, I, you know, I think about COVID-19 and how the um, dramatic increase in women's um, unpaid work burden because women sort of bore the burden of unpaid domestic and childcare responsibilities um, has contributed to the, you know, the disproportionate um, increase in depressive and anxiety um, phenomena among women compared to men. Um, So I think it speaks to the, um, you know, gender disparities that, um, have, you know, historically kind of played out at a social cultural level. So I think that is very important. I don't know when or how that changes, but obviously the pendulum does tend to, tend to swing. Yes. And I think that there's another component to that though, Soraya, which is the, the woman who has to be all things. And I wonder to what extent that in itself doesn't create certain Pressures. I I, uh, I have to reference uh, a Netflix series that I watch. It's a Danish series, Borgen, and the new one is called Power and Glory. And it says the subtitle is "The Future is Female." And so here we have women in positions of power, political power, being all things. And 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 to some extent, I, I often ask the question: You've got to be a mother. Um, you've got to be a wife. You've got to be a career woman. What else? And to what extent those kinds of expectations of now that there is opportunity, now there's expectation that you will obviously pursue, so now what? And I I, I do encounter women who, who struggle with these, the balancing act and making the choices where they're saying, well, is it either or? Either I have a family or I have a career. And so obviously, as I say, the, the pendulum, you know, kind of swings and has swung and Hopefully, for everybody's mental health, the pendulum will will settle somewhere in the middle where people can have what they would like to have, but within a a balanced uh, setup where, you know, there's career, but there's also family and these things are are, are managed accordingly. So I think that one of the issues that, that I've certainly seen is that there's a lot of pressure, I think, on women to perform now because it's possible. So I don't know what your thoughts are there, Soraya. Uh, yes, I agree. I think, you know, women are under enormous pressure and have to fulfill these multiple roles. And we often sort of talk about this double burden um, of both paid and unpaid work. And, you know, it's the unpaid work 
often in women who are more socioeconomically disadvantaged that um, is perceived as drudgery. You know, it's work that they have to do. They don't actually have the means to uh, employ individuals to help with uh, the unpaid work that they do. So I agree that, um, you know, um, in, 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 in this age, we have a situation where women are under tremendous uh, pressure. They want to work. They should work. Yeah. And then coupled with that, um, you know, we know that there is a gender-based pay gap. Um, yes. If we think about medicine uh, alone, um, I mean, this is an ongoing crisis, and I think it it contributes to the, you know, psychological stress and distress that women experience fulfilling those multiple roles. Because coupled with you know the financial stress and the and the disparity that they um, face on a day to day basis, I think it just makes. Um, you know, fulfilling all of those roles particularly difficult. Yeah, and I think that we haven't yet arrived at a perfect solution in, in that regard. But I think that's why these discussions are important because yes. we come back to something fundamental, and that is balance. And, I mean, it's so trite and it's so obvious, but yet I think it's 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 lacking in many situations where there's just a reasoned approach to say, okay, what is reasonable here? What is the balance? And I, I think that there's also a, a, a timing. So there's a time to be more connected to one aspect of your life than another. You don't have to do everything simultaneously at the same time because that, I think, is, is, is truly burdensome. So really I think how one approaches it from a timing point of view is actually also important and to understand there are different times in your life where different things take priority and that's okay as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Sorry? No, I think that that, that is true and um, we also have to be able to make some suggestions to, to women and men in terms of uh, how they can improve you know, uh, their lives, how to you know, protect themselves from easily getting depressed. Things such as uh, regular exercise. Sure. Uh, to alleviate stress and, you know, promote some calmness, eating and balanced diet. Uh, but with women, um, in terms of these multiple roles, there's also a suggestion that uh, if they look at a job that they're suited for, uh, to, you know, to move away from something that is uh, making their symptoms worse, because apparently most of the workplace areas are toxic for some women. Mm. But then you have a, a problem there that switching jobs is not an easy thing. No. You know, you may find that you are, you cannot get another job or you may have to negotiate with your employer in terms of uh, placement in an area where you, you feel, you know, your, your, your symptoms uh, are, will be better or you won't enjoy too much stress. Those are possibilities, but they're difficult to negotiate. So here you're talking about accommodation in the workplace for somebody with an existing problem. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's a whole different discussion. But yeah. I think what we are talking about is the fact that balance is key, and there are obviously changing roles, yes. both for men and women. Yeah. And we are moving into to a, a situation where, where stereotypes um, are being challenged. And I think that traditional roles are being challenged. And I think that we're in a time of, 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 of significant change. And I think usually when there's, when there's change, people are unsettled. And I think we may see more, more difficulties. Um, I wanted to touch on something which I'd sort of passed by, uh, which is a complete change from where we are now, which is suicide. Because I think that if there are gender discrepancies, one sees it in terms of Attempted suicide being more common amongst women, but completed suicide being more common 
uh, amongst men. And certainly within the South African context, the male-to-female ratio, specifically 3.88 to 1 in terms of a male bias, in terms of completed suicide. So what are your thoughts on that, Solly, and then Soraya? You know, uh, in most cases, women cry for help. And the methods that they use to attempt suicide will really be what you call minor, but they can also be lethal. Sure. I mean, use of uh, Panaro and similar tablets, you know, in huge dosages, uh, drinking some potions with all sorts of things. But most women end up in hospital, they are resuscitated, and they go back home after appropriate treatment. But men tend to, it's almost like they are providing for themselves a final solution. Mm. He, he says, I've had enough, I want to die. So they shoot themselves, they hang themselves. Right. We, we don't hear much of women who shot themselves no. or hang themselves. It's, it's mainly a phenomenon we see with men or men who bend themselves in cars and so on. Right. You know, so, so this is an important aspect because. Or the murder suicide where yes. the man kills the family and then kills themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we don't hear that happening a lot with women. So it means women, in a sense, want to keep the family together. They want to also continue living. They cry for help and they go for, they go for help, you know, when, when they're severely depressed or they're anxious. Well, I think there is that gender bias in, in that sense. I don't yes. know, Soraya, what are your thoughts around suicide and the sort of gender disparity? Yes, so as you've mentioned, um, you know, this is a gender differential that is seen across the lifespan. Uh, but in some countries, um, we know that uh, the rates of suicide among uh, women are uh, increasing. And I think yes. this is a very worrying trend. Mm. Um, you take uh, India, for example, um, and we need to, I think, um, ensure that um, because we have this differential currently where um, men are more likely to die from suicide, women more likely to attempt suicide, that we don't um, underestimate right. uh, the risks, especially repeated yes. um, suicide attempts among teens and, and, and women. Because we're seeing that, um, you know, teen girls are dying more by suicide than was the situation Previously, and this is, I think, to a large extent attributed to an increase in uh, the use of lethal means and access to lethal means for suicide, um, you know, including sort of suffocation. So I think we need to um, to ensure that, you know, these kind of differential statistics don't kind of dampen yes. our um, awareness and... Um, you know, index of suspicion well, I think, uh, that women could, um, you know, could kill themselves through suicide. Well, you know, we're getting into stereotypes in mm. that sense. We were saying, well, you know, that's what the data shows, so therefore there may be less of a concern. And I think, Soraya, your point's important, is that you can't do that. You have to look at each case on its merits, and you have to understand the inclination and the potential for lethality of, of an attempt within the context of the, the individual. So as much as, yes, the data may show a, a certain gender distribution, one has to be – I think 
it's a truism with psychiatry. With with every patient, you're doing a risk assessment, and you're not saying, well, because you're a woman, you're less likely. Because you're a man, you're more likely. Yes. I think you're looking at the individual and saying, what is their history? What is their problem? Mm-hmm. What is the likelihood? And you're doing a thorough risk assessment for every single person, irrespective of 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 their gender and irrespective of of the data. Would that be prudent? No, I agree with you. Uh, that continued alertness. Uh, it's important so that you don't really miss out on somebody who could have assisted, that you could have helped. So we've spoken a lot about the male-female situation, but I just want to touch very briefly because we're sort of coming to the end. But the the impact that women have on women, and I wanted to look at mothers and daughters, and I wanted to touch on bullying. Because I can tell you some of the bullying that I have, not me personally, but I have had witness to um, amongst young women, young girls, has, has, has kind of really had a profound impact on some of the patients that I have seen. And so there's a different kind of bullying that, that takes place, courtesy of, of social media. And then, of course, coming back to eating disorders and mothers and daughters. So I think that as much as one looks at, at men, one also has to look at women in terms of saying, okay, to what extent are they also contributing to some extent, to mental health issues in other women. So, Ray, I'm going to ask you maybe a provocative question, but certainly in, in my experience. So, um, you know, bullying is, um, I think, one of the um, kind of leading uh, concerns currently, especially yes. when we think about sort of cyberbullying. Um, and when I say it's one of the leading concerns, one of the leading concerns when we think about Uh, the youth of today. Um, And, you know, bullying is defined in many um, ways, and I think that's been part of the challenge. I see it as a challenge in uh, high education settings where many of the policies that we have around victimization um, and harassment uh, do not directly speak um, to bullying. So, um, you know, bullying uh, occurs across a spectrum of type and severity. Um, and it is essentially behavior that is really mean and hurtful yes. uh, towards other people. And it occurs in the context of relationships. And, you know, those relationships can be quite tenuous relationships or they can be um, very close relationships like, you know, mother-child relationship uh, or sibling relationships. And, um, you know, bullying can be physical, it can be relational, it can be verbal. Um, And then, as I said, cyberbullying is, I think, a form of bullying that is really um, spiraling out of control. Well, I think, um, and it's very difficult to manage, especially in the context of families and in the school environment. I think somebody pointed out in a previous podcast, which I think is important, is that that kind of bullying is 24-7. It's mm. not just in the playground. It's 24-7. Yes. Just touching on one thing about uh, women's mental health and, and, and the mental health of the, of the girl child, and I just want to mention it, is the absent father. And I think that the absent father is a, is a critical issue in female and, and, and female mental health specifically. So I, I don't have time, but I, I did do a YouTube talk. It's, it's available, and uh, it deals with the father-daughter relationship. It was a talk that I gave at Brescia House. So if you look for father-daughter relationships and Brescia House, you'll, you'll come across that talk where I kind of unpack the importance of, of fathers, not just in relation to eating disorders, which is where the conversation started out within the context of that 
uh, talk that I gave, but looking at how fathers empower daughters generally. And it was one of my theories on gender-based violence. How do we have more empowered women, which may in itself be preventative uh, mm. in, in, in that arena? But we don't necessarily have time to get into that. But I want to ask both of you, and this is a, a question that – I have an answer to based on my own experience as a former head of department. Is psychiatry becoming a more feminized discipline? <laughs> so that's <laughs> – I don't understand the question. I'll, but, tell, you uh, the, I'll tell you the, the answer. But, well, Because I noted that in my department, I think it was 85% of my trainees were female. Same with my former department, yes. Right. Soraya, you your observation? So we can look at trends based on uh, HPCSA data and registered um, South African psychiatrists. We've looked at the female-male ratio over time Mm. uh, over the past 20 years, and it is becoming a more feminized Mm. medicine if we define feminization. (laughs) Well, there's more women. uh, There's more women women in the discipline uh, across the country. But I think this um, in in fact, stems from what we see in medicine more generally, because right. um, you know that trend um, tracks the trends that we see in um, MBCHB students. Right. Um, so enrollment of students um, since 2000, there've been a number of studies in the country uh, nationally across all medical schools showing that um, currently on average there are about sort of 60% right. of the composition, females, 60% right. of the composition of um, MBCHB students, students right. um, at a medical school. Um, at my own medical school, Stellenbosch University, I think we're approximating sort of seventy percent. Okay. Um, so, um, so that's an interesting. And psychiatry also tend to be right. um, the disciplines that um, are um, more attractive, attractive right. to to women doctors. Okay. Um, so I think that what we see in psychiatry uh, maps onto the trends that we see okay. um, in MBCHB programs. So just a statement from me. Yes. My observation worldwide is that uh, females tend to do better in medicine than men, particularly undergraduate. Okay. And then you find even in those specialties which were predominantly male, like orthopedics, right. there are more women getting into them. Absolutely. So, so it's not yeah. an exception that we no, have no. more women in psychiatry sure. too. Sure. So, Soraya and Solly, it's been great to host you. I really want to thank you both so much for making the time to be part of this conversation. I, I think a very important one going out as it will be this episode on Women's Day. I just want to close with a, a few words. I came across an article by a chap called Patrizio Marquez. He's a senior associate at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. He wrote an article and the, the, the title of the article is a statement in itself. Healthy women are the cornerstone of healthy societies. And within the article, he went on to say that there was new research that also provided evidence about the impact that the well-being of women has on the intergenerational propagation of good physical and mental health. And I think that's very important. There are consequences which have consequences. So as much as today's episode has highlighted women's mental health, such health does not occur or exist in a vacuum. Men certainly have a role to play and they have their own health issues. And so on Women's Day, I'm going to close with a quote from one of my favorite Stoics, Marcus Aurelius. It's a challenge to men where he says, waste no more time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. 
Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.